We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to the Timeline of Phoenix Suns podcast. My name is Mike Vihill. I'm here with my co-host, Sam Cooper. Sam, how are you doing? Doing fine, Mike. Can we just let the season end already, though? Because it's just dragging on and on, and I'm ready for the playoffs to start right now. It, it kind of it feels like it's over already, right? As yeah. soon as Devin Booker rolled his ankle. Yeah, I, I mean, we'll talk about the Pelicans win in a minute, and that was, that was a great, probably the highlight of this week. Uh, it was great to see that ragtag group of, you know, questionable NBA talents win a game in overtime like that against a more legitimate team. But for the most part, I mean, today against Houston, they just got curb stomped. Uh, you know, yeah. everyone was a Josh Jackson was a minus 40. Uh, and, and you just go into games like that knowing that you don't really have a chance. So I think I, I don't know what the TV ratings were for that game, but I can't imagine many people are tuning in at this point. And I think we're all just basically ready for the season to end. Well, I can tell you that people weren't really tweeting about it. <laughs> if that's a measure of how many people were watching it, there wasn't a lot of social interaction around that Actually, game. Actually, I mean... It's difficult to watch. Yeah, on that note, I noticed Reddit, the game threads uh, on our sons have been popping off this year for the most part. Like, most games get about a 1,000 comments, especially towards the beginning of the season when there was still uh, some level of optimism and hope. And this one, this one had, I think, like 130 comments by the end of the game. And, you know, keep in mind, that's like the same 30 people commenting a few times it felt like a throwback to like a 2014 game thread or something like that so <laughs> clearly people are not as invested in the team at this point in the season that's what we can conclude well for those who don't know Devin Booker rolled his ankle pretty bad too it looked it turned sideways basically 
in the game against Utah, just a few minutes into the game where he looked incredible to start that game, just continuing his string of performances that he has been doing throughout these last few weeks. And, you know, it was really hard to watch, but, but it was the final starter going down, basically. So that means Tyler Johnson, Devin Booker, Kelly Oubre, uh, DeAndre Ayton, TJ Warren are all injured now. So the season, like we talked about, the season is basically over. But if you remember from the beginning of the season, one of the big talking points was the starters are doing okay. And as soon as the starters sit, the bench comes in and we get demolished. That was a huge talking point when we started this season, even before uh, the Trevor Reza and, and Ryan Anderson trades. So those starters were still relatively okay in plus minus, and then we would get demolished when the bench comes on. So as soon as the entirety of the starting lineup goes down, it's a real test <laughs> to find out how just how bad that bench and that depth is. And uh, surprisingly, they came out immediately. So that Utah game, it was kind of over when Devin Booker went down. You can't expect a team to rally after watching their best player go down like that and, and have to get sort of helped off the court. You can't really expect them to win that. And they did lose 118-97. Joe Ingles was incredible in that game. Uh, we've talked about him a lot this season. Utah just kills us. Uh, you know, I, I, it'd be nice to get some wins against Utah next year. Uh, but the next game was New Orleans. So we do want to talk about that. What a weird game. The last time we played New Orleans was the famous Alvin Gentry timeout, the Chris Webber, the timeout that you don't have that led to the Suns winning. And uh, this game had some bizarre moments. It, it went into overtime, but th- the real story of the game is that a team that shouldn't have won, won. And the Pelicans were without a few of their players too, but they still have guys that are pros. And, and you know, this was more like Dragon Bender, Mikhail Bridges, Josh Jackson, Elliot Kobo, and Ray Spalding. These were the guys that start- started this game. So you can't really expect too much out of that starting lineup, but they looked really good. And it was actually a really entertaining game something that i didn't really expect maybe one of josh jackson's best games ever Yeah, it was funny because we talked about last week did josh jackson i think it was a win over the Cavs. was at his best game yeah. of his career and then he comes out in this one uh 35 points nine rebounds five assists zero turnovers five of eight shooting from deep he five also threes. took one, yeah five threes he took 29 shots in this game and didn't have a single free throw attempt which i thought was really funny uh, but so he yeah. he played a phenomenal game. Ray Spalding really came out in this one. I I was not confident in his abilities to be a starting caliber NBA center even for a game, and he he really showed out and did a great job. Had a few steals and a few blocks. Uh, was active on the glass. Dragon Bender. I, I think a lot of people were talking about him because of his block numbers. Uh, but really everyone outside of maybe Mikael Bridges in this one just played a good game, and the Suns needed that in order to win. Yeah, it was absolutely necessary. It was, you know, it's interesting. I, as a Suns fan, I want to always defend players when you talk about them doing really well in garbage time. <laughs> but I think at the end of April or at the end of the season in April, when when a lot of the games don't matter, it's a little bit different. So many people are resting. So many uh, teams are either tanking for playoff position or just trying to lose at the end of the season to get better draft picks and you know, it's easy to be happy about what we see. It's just nice to see Dragon Bender have a great game. It's nice to see Josh Jackson have a great game. But it's hard to know how much that actually means, right? I'm not sure what to even make of any of this. I know a lot of people are saying it's time to re-sign Dragon Bender. And I, I think that that's a fair thing to say. Like we talked about on our last week's episode, he is a, a, a backup power forward. That's probably his best position. Although he seems to be better and better at playing center, especially now that he has to since even Rashawn Holmes is out. Uh, but... I'm just not sure that this 
performance is, is the type of thing that you can point at and say, clearly he needs to be re-signed because I'm not sure how much teams are even trying at this point. You know, he looked good. Josh Jackson looked good. But what does it really mean? Yeah, I agree with that assessment. I, I mean, look, I think at the end of the day, the fact that the Suns actually won a game is important. Towards the end of last season, they won, what, like three games in the past? In the last, like, 25 games of the season or something, they went, like, three and 22. I don't have the record off the top of my head, but it was it was absolutely atrocious, even worse than this year, I think. Uh, and, and so, yeah, I mean, you can't take much away from these games, especially when trying to decipher, like, Josh Jackson's future three-point shooting. That's been a big focus of conversation uh, over the past couple of weeks. He is shooting great. Uh, you know, he went yeah. five of eight in a Pelicans game. He's shooting, like, he's one of the best catch-and-shoot three-point shooters on this team technically we talked yeah. about that in previous episodes something like 40 percent on threes overall since the all-star break but it's just you know he's i think i remember at the beginning of the season josh came in and he said his goal was to get up to 32 33 percent three-point shooting uh in his sophomore year and he's now officially done that which is actually really good the problem is that overall he hasn't had a much better season uh season to season from his rookie year and sophomore year because the finishing is just still so bad you know, turning the ball over in transition, getting tunnel vision, the same problems that we've talked about with him constantly. It's just, you, like you said, how much can you really take away from these performances and, and hope to see continued future growth in his third season based on, you know, these games that don't mat, uh, don't mean. Would you pick up right now, if you had to make the choice, and we do by, the, I think, the beginning of July, would you pick up Josh Jackson's option right now? Uh, Yeah, probably. Uh, even... That's a tough one. Given how yeah. well he's playing right now, I think you probably have to do it. The Suns have to make a lot of tough decisions here uh, this summer. I guess it depends on uh, who's in charge in the front office and what the strategy is to go out and acquire new talent because there are ways. Uh, you, you might have to remind me. I don't know if you have it in front of you. Is that option like 8 or $9 million, something like that? I don't have it in front. I think it's a, a little over $8 million, if, not, yeah, if so, I'm not mistaken. A lot. Yes, that, that's a lot. Uh, so in order to justify doing that, and then still re-signing Kelly Oubre and Rashawn Holmes, uh, and, and now potentially Dragon Bender, or Jamal Crawford, even or you know these other players, you're not going to have any money left over. I haven't run the numbers, but I know with all of that, you're not going to have money left over to go out and get free agents. If you want to acquire any talent, it's through the draft or it's through a trade or for you know signing veteran minimum type players in free agency. No one, no one big. Uh, so you have to make choices somewhere. Either you have to accept that you're not actually bringing back this entire squad, you're not bringing back Bender and uh, maybe Holmes or or Ubre, uh, or or you're going to go out and you're going to wave and stretch Tyler Johnson's contract. That's another option. Uh, or you're going to salary dump T.J. Warren's contract in a trade. Or you get to keep Josh Jackson. I mean, you just this team won. What is it? Nineteen games? Are we at nineteen wins right now? I believe so. Yeah, you can't afford to keep like 10 of your rotation players on a 19 win team. You know, you got to do some spring cleaning. Like I yeah. believe that there's, you know, future growth out of this team that, that the young players can continue to develop. I've been impressed by some of the development coming out of these players, but overall there's just no reason to keep 10 or 11 guys on a roster that won 19 games, even if they were riddled with injuries at the end of the season, it's just obviously something isn't working and the Suns do need to make some cuts. We talked about it on our last episode as well. We want this next front office, and we're going to talk about the rumors about that in a minute, whoever they are, to really fully commit to building around Devin Booker. And and I think you look at Josh Jackson as a potential guy who could fit if, if everything works out, but we, we just don't know if everything's going to work out. You know, um, 
not that he was bad in this Houston game, but he was a minus 40. <laughs> the team got outscored by 40 points with him on the floor. And Houston's locked in. They're in playoff mode. They look good. And uh, they came out really focused to to really put it on the sun. So I don't I don't blame him for that. But I just think it's it's what it is with Josh Jackson. He goes from having one of his best games to being a minus 40 the next game. It's what makes it hard to really evaluate him as a player moving forward. Um, I'd pick up that option too, by the way. It's 8.9 million in 20. 2021 so that's the option we'd be looking at he's on the team next year he's already guaranteed that money seven million dollars in 1920 2021 8.9 million and this is crazy 21 22 his qualifying offer which i'm sure unless things go really badly in the next two seasons i'm sure he will be a free agent and get some money a longer deal but that qualifying offer is 11 million so if he doesn't put it together he's probably you know that qualifying offer is not a crazy thing to try and (laughs) Uh, take because 11 million is a lot of money if he's if he can't figure out how to put it together Um, but if they build around Devin Booker to me what you're looking at is three players that you're you're gonna you're gonna keep right now and that's Devin Booker DeAndre and Mikhail Bridges and every other position you have to look at opportunities to upgrade I know that we as fans, you know, because this is a fan-focused podcast, just just a reminder, we're not journalists, we're not at the games, we're not talking to these players, we're fans, we're just people who like to talk about this team, and, and we want them to succeed, there's a genuine desire for them to succeed, we're not neutral at all. So as fans, what happens is you get attached to these players, you want to be successful, but then because you've spent so much time watching them develop, you want to be successful with those players. So you become attached to them and and you want, you know, you want to resign them and you want to see them develop. You want to see dra- the dragon uh his wings finally spread and see him fly and blow some flames. But it's just you have to really look for every single avenue to upgrade every other position. You know, Kelly Oubre is another guy I think that we could keep. But even that one, if you can find any way to upgrade that position, which I don't think there really is a way to upgrade from where Kelly Oubre is right now, at least not easily. But if you can find that, you have to do it. Uh, you know, so it's just a, it's an interesting situation that we're in where it's it's going to be difficult for whoever takes control of this front office. But I think for a lot of fans, it's going to be a difficult offseason, too, because I think some pe- some people are going to move that we don't expect uh, to move. Yeah, anything is possible. It's well, actually, did you see Kelly Oubre uh, since we're talking about him? He just finished with the uh, he trademarked Valley Boys today. And yeah. Evan Snydery posted a tweet that said uh, his analysis of, of that was that he expects that Ubre will unveil the official merchandise after he signs his July 1st contract extension with the Suns, a tweet which Kelly Ubre then liked. Now, I'm not trying to look too deep into that, but I think maybe Kelly Ubre has already a suspicion that the team, regardless of who's running it, is going to really try to keep him long term. Who knows how much that's going to take? But yeah, there's there's totally guys. I mean, I, people have been throwing out T.J. Warren's name forever, but you know, even fan favorites like Rashawn Holmes could very easily get lost in the shuffle this summer right. and and not be here next season. With as as great of a positive contribution as he's made, because he's one of the players who I legitimately think has just been very solidly consistent in a positive way for the Suns all season long. But you know, when you're counting money, he could not be back. Uh, obvi- and you know, then you get to the the next tier of players, which is. Dragon Bender, Troy Daniels, and Jamal Crawford are all free agents. All three of those guys have had their moments this season. Um, I've been a big fan of Troy Daniels all season long. Jamal Crawford actually just had two kick-ass performances in a row. I mean, again, I know we got killed tonight by Houston, but he was actually efficient for a second game in a row, which was really cool. 
uh, and Bender's had his moments, but I think the likelihood of, of those types of players being brought back is just, you just have to accept that it's probably not going to happen. I could be wrong, but I, I just don't really see it. Yeah, I want to say, first off, Evan Sidery, that was a great tweet. <laughs> I love the way that the tweet just assumed that the extension was going to go down on July 1st, and I like that Kelly Oubre liked it. I think that what it shows, if it doesn't show that there's a plan in place to sign Kelly Oubre, it does show that he wants to stay. I think that's a big thing with Kelly Oubre, and that's a huge thing for Suns fans too. This is a guy who really wants to re-sign in Phoenix. Just thinking about trading Trevor Ariza for him from a guy who really could care less, who who did not put the time in. He was the first guy to leave practices. A lot of the you know a lot of the talk about him was he wasn't putting the time in, and he didn't really care to be here. To to move from that to Kelly Oubre, I just don't think there's any chance that this Suns brass lets him go because. If you watch any commercial right now of the Phoenix Suns, it's like 60% Kelly Oubre. (laughs) He's in all of their marketing. They show a lot of him. First off, he's one of the most enthusiastic on the court whenever he does anything good. And second, he's he probably has the most exciting dunks on this team. So it's easy to market those dunks. But the fact that he's also flexing immediately after the dunks and making faces <laughs> and kind of doing that shoulder uh, wiggle thing, it's easy to put on a commercial or, or even a photograph um, on, on Facebook or something. It, it just makes sense that they, they want to keep him. But the other point that you were talking about is letting a guy like Rashawn Holmes go. First of all, his mom tweeted recently, I don't know if everyone saw that, saying, uh, you know, if we don't make it back to Phoenix, thank you, Suns fans. She's awesome. She's been really, she's almost like another mascot for us. It's really nice to have someone on Twitter that just it, it pumps up Suns fans all the time and celebrates wins with us. Um, they've been great. It, you know, we've we've accepted them into the Suns family, and I think they've accepted us into their family. And she even came on our podcast, which is really kind of crazy to think about. So shout out to her. But I think Suns fans are talking about wanting to bring Dragon Bender back. And I think for this Suns brass, I think it's likely going to be one of those two guys. I don't think you can really keep both of them, uh, you know, with both of them being free agents. They're, they're going to make money. Uh, maybe not a lot of money, but we don't have a lot of cap space. We've talked about it. A lot of it is eaten up. You know, Devin Booker's extension kicks in. Uh, Kelly Oubre, if we sign him, we do have his rights, and we could potentially sign players and just keep his cap hold. But even just his cap hold alone does eat up that cap space. So we're playing in an interesting position here and, and you know I think it's likely going to be one of those two guys I think Troy Daniels I think he's as good as gone I, you know unless he he plans on signing for an absolute bare minimum and if he does why wouldn't he go to a playoff team you know it, it wouldn't surprise me that if the Warriors just picked him up <laughs> because he's just a guy who can hit threes and there's a lot of wide open threes to go around on that team so I just don't think that he's going to be on this team next year it's it's a really interesting situation and maybe we should talk about this now um, the rumors are out about who the Phoenix Suns are hiring, not necessarily to be a general manager. There was a really interesting ESPN story by Woj, of course. Uh, Woj wrote all about how the Suns have zeroed in on Jeff Bauer. Jeff Bauer, most recently with the Detroit Pistons, uh, previously was the general manager of the Chris Paul team in New Orleans, who were the Hornets at the time. Uh, So a guy that's been around the NBA for a long time, lots of experience, but the article was interesting for many reasons. First off, Larry Fitzgerald was in the interview. (laughs) Yeah, that's the funniest. Uh, Actually, Sam, yeah, it's the funniest part. Sam, I do want to ask you, you're not from Arizona. You've you've never lived in Arizona. (laughs) Absolutely, yeah. Uh, What's your perception? What's your perception of just Larry Fitzgerald as as a person, as a, as a football player, just just in general. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not nearly as big of a football guy as I am a basketball guy, but I know Larry Fitzgerald is a legendary player uh, who's revered uh, across the state of Arizona. 
I'm trying to think if there, because I'm from New York, I'm trying to think if there's a New York comparison. I can't think of one off the top of my head. New York fans tend to be pretty uh, disloyal to players when they leave. But uh, and that's the thing about I mean, Larry. He's the never way I got described is Larry Fitzgerald is probably one of the guys who could run for some sort of public office in the state of Arizona, and he he would have to win, right? I'd vote for him. Yeah. See, so yeah, that's that's <laughs> yeah. I'm trying. I'm trying to think. Is there like a definitely not in basketball because the Knicks have sucked. Patrick so Ewing. Patrick Ewing is yeah, but Patrick Ewing has like he's gone on and he's done other things outside of the Knicks. I'm thinking about like maybe like a Derek Jeter. If you want to make like a baseball right. comparison is is like the best New right. York comparison. But yeah, New York fans are really pretty awful uh, with the way they treat players like Carmelo Anthony after they after they pack up and leave town. Now, now granted, Carmelo <laughs> Anthony in New York, not nearly as successful as Larry Fitzgerald in, in Arizona, wasn't as good of a player. But anyway, uh, yeah. So, I mean, that's basically my perception of Fitz is, is just that uh, everyone loves him. Still a little bit weird for him to be part of those uh, that that interview process. But who knows? Maybe maybe he's a better. He might be a better decision maker than Sarver, quite honestly. So. Right, right. That was the first thing I tweeted, partially as a joke, but partially serious, but just because I don't trust Sarver to make any decision. I saw somebody on Reddit say that maybe he was there to see how that person they were interviewing would respond just to star athletes in general, which I think is giving Robert Sarver way too much credit. I think that it's more like he wanted someone whose opinion he trusts, and and you know. Larry Fitzgerald, he's not just an excellent football player. He is a guy who's made a lot of smart decisions in his life. He he he's a business owner. He's he's smart. He's got lots of um, endorsements. He he's a well liked person. Really popular in Arizona. Also, apparently, uh, one of our lead scouts. We you know after <laughs> after the scouting uh, report by Woj, the same guy, uh, about how the Suns didn't have any scouts. Everyone and their mom were there to watch John Morant's next game including Larry Fitzgerald, who was sitting with Robert Sarver. Uh, so, you know, Robert Sarver and Larry Fitzgerald commonly will sit together at games. Throughout the Steve Nash years, Larry Fitzgerald would sit courtside with his son. He's a huge Suns fan, and he's someone that's been there throughout the process. And I think, to Robert Sarver's credit, which I don't say often, but to Robert Sarver's credit, I think he's just trying to bring a guy in who understands good culture, who understands athletes, and, and could potentially have some insight. Just because he's there does not necessarily mean he's part of the decision-making process, but to have any insight that could help him understand if this would be a person that could work well with athletes, I think would help Robert Sarver because Robert Sarver is someone who has not worked well with athletes in the past. So that part is insane regardless. It's just bizarre <laughs> that you would bring an NFL player to a, a general manager meeting with the Phoenix Suns. But the other part is he, the the rumors are not that he will be a general manager. This is a man who was in charge uh, other than when Steve uh, Van Gundy was brought into the uh, Pistons because he was the president of basketball operations, which is a position above the general manager. So uh, he did not have final decision-making power there in Detroit. But he was someone that was in in charge previously in New Orleans. So if he were to come to Phoenix, the way that article was written, first of all, was very carefully written. Uh, they talked about it as a high up position in the front office, but not necessarily general manager. It sort of implied that James Jones would take control of that general manager position, which I don't think is that surprising because previous to this report, there was another report where James Jones said in the next week or so, we should be more clear about the front office positions and what will be happening with the Phoenix Suns in the future. So he, the implication there being 
we should be more clear uh, that sort of implied I also am part of this decision-making process, I being James Jones in that scenario. So from what I can tell, this would be James Jones, general manager, and you know I'm, we have no idea, uh, and then hopefully Trevor Buckstein. It seems like he's very well-liked, and uh, as an advisory role, I guess, I'm not exactly sure what to call it, Jeff Bauer um, underneath him, helping them uh, understand the ropes and understand how a front office really should be managed. Part of the big story about the disaster that is the Phoenix Suns front office was small stuff, even like letting everyone know on other teams who to contact if they want to make a trade with the Phoenix Suns. That's the type of thing a general manager who's been in the league 20 years could help with. But, you know, I'm not exactly sure what this is. There's a lot to talk about here. Nothing super exciting as far as Jeff Bauer as a name. But what did you think of this story, Sam? Uh, Well, I actually like Jeff Bauer as a name. I've talked at length in the past about there's no perfect candidate. Either you're going to go out and you're going to get someone who's completely inexperienced from a decision-making perspective, or you're going to get someone who's previously been an NBA general manager, but either had to step down or was fired, which presumably happened because they made their fair share of mistakes. And and that's the case with Jeff Bauer as well. I mean, if you look at Detroit, again, it's good that you mentioned Van Gundy being involved in the decision-making process as well, but he certainly had his fair share of mistakes in, in uh, Detroit. He selected Stanley Johnson over Devin Booker, uh, for instance, um, and then took Henry Ellenson <laughs> in the first round in the draft after that. In New Orleans, I believe the reason he stepped down was because he was, uh, he, well, first of all, he actually took over as the coach uh, from an interim perspective for them for one season and had some uh, disagreements with Chris Paul. And Chris Paul was getting frustrated, sort of, uh, by, this was about 2010, about uh, the Hornets missing the playoffs that season after they had previously been a playoff team the last couple of years, having an aging core and not feeling as though Bauer was really putting his best foot forward to build a championship contender around Chris Paul, who at that point was, you know, one of the best players in the NBA and and sort of an MVP runner up even in some of his best seasons. But overall, Bauer has also had a lot of successes, uh, you know, in, in terms of he brought in role players like, uh, uh, why am I blanking? He brought in role players like Peja Stojakovic and Tyson Chandler uh, to sort of add to a core of Chris Paul and uh, David West that turned into, at its peak, a 56-win team. Uh, in New Orleans at the time. So that was a very good team. They made the second round. And that's the sort of decision making that you like seeing in in terms of trying to take the Suns and turn them around from a lottery team uh, into an actual contender. Now that you know you have this talent to build around a Devin Booker and DeAndre Ayton. From another perspective, though, I think the only thing that really worries me when we talk about all of these different guys is you have to clearly delineate the roles of each of these front office executives, and, and they really obviously haven't done that yet. Uh, but if you've got a guy like Jeff Bauer, who's experienced, and you've got a guy like Trevor Buckstein, where what he brings to the table is cap uh, and, and navigating those you know salary cap rules. And then you've got James Jones, and he's you know everybody's best friend uh, down at the, the bottom floor in the practice facility, and, and he's buddy-buddy with the players. The only thing that worries me is really trying to figure out who's really in charge at the end of the day. There's a certain advantage to knowing who the one guy is in a front office uh, capacity, because the more people that you start to loop into the decision making process, the more risk averse you tend to be. There's like, you know, you, you start to sort of come towards uniformity. No one's necessarily taking the same risks that they otherwise might if it was just a single person who was. Uh, really in charge. So that's maybe the only thing that worries me about, you know, I've got nothing against the Suns bringing in experience into their front office. In fact, that's why overall I'd applaud this as a good rule uh, or as a good move. 
But I'm just curious who's really going to be the guy. To what extent will Jeff Bauer, if he's brought in, of course, have a uh, final decision making power? Or is he really just going to be a yes man uh, to James Jones and Robert Starver at the end of the day? Right. And there's even weirdly, there's even a benefit to if if James Jones was sort of to seize control of the front office to even clearing house and filling it with guys that are his guys. Um, not that I want that to happen again. There's been enough turnover as is, but but it, it creates a proper pecking order where everyone understands who the where the buck stops and where all the information sort of rolls up to. Um, you know, it seems like, you know, I've talked about it before. The more and more I've learned about James Jones, and I've always been a fan of him as a player, I think that he's capable of running a front office. I think that he understands what proper culture is for a team. He's been on some pretty incredible teams in the past. He's won championships. He's been around star players. He understands what star players need and how they should be talked to and spoken to. He understands the media really well. I think that he it, it would work if he was in charge. And I will say that's sort of the saving grace to the story for me because although I although I like Jeff Bauer more than I like Kevin McHale or Paxson, Jim Paxson, it's still sort of like the ham sandwich, the, the Subway sandwich of options. It's nothing exciting. There's nothing super fun about it, right? And, and this is the problem that we've talked about time and time again here where uh, you either get a guy who's experienced who everyone can pick apart every single resume uh, that move that they've ever made or you get a guy who's completely inexperienced and that's not great either. So I'm not expecting or or asking to be super blown away by any option. But that's, I think, what's nice about this is if we kept James Jones and if we kept Trevor Buckstein and you just added Jeff Bauer in as somebody who's an experienced guy who's been around the league a long time, probably knows a lot of people, which matters too in the NBA, right? If you're trying to get a trade done and you can easily text somebody in a front office that you've spoken with in the past that trusts your judgment, that's not a terrible thing to have. That's a good thing to have as a general manager. So, you know, from that perspective, it sounds kind of okay. It's just nothing super, super exciting. Um, we'll see where it goes, but I will say this report was different. The reports in the past about Kevin McHale and Paxson were rumors. They they sort of said the Suns are rumored to be considering these guys. This report was more like the Phoenix Suns are zeroing in on, and that combined with the other port report from uh, James Jones, who spoke on the radio about this front office uh, clarification that's coming this week, that sort of leads to me believing that this is just on the verge of happening. But in the past, we've seen that happen before. <laughs> there was a chance this last offseason that Mike Budenholzer was going to be the coach of the Suns, and then that all fell apart, and then he's now coaching the number one team in the yep. league. So who knows? You never really know how things can fall was, apart um, and how quickly they can fall apart, especially for it the It wasn't Suns. just Mike Budenholzer e either. Wasn't there another coach that uh, was supposed to be... Mike? Oh, was Mike Woodson supposed to be an assistant for us and then never happened? I don't even yes. remember. But... Yeah, it was bizarre. Yeah, that was just so bizarre. The last thing I'll say about Bauer, I agree. I think I agree with you. This is probably a good idea. In theory, on paper, stacking these different front office right. executives with, with different strengths is good. Right. My worry is that in practice, it's going to be, to make a comparison to a basketball team, Goran Dragic, Isaiah Thomas, and Eric Bledsoe on the same roster at the same time. <laughs> and nobody's going to really know who the fuck is in charge. And, and the three of them are going to clash. But as long as you really clearly define those roles, uh, and create a pecking order, as you said, should be fine. <laughs> that, that might be my favorite take that you've <laughs> ever had on this podcast. <laughs> uh, that's really good. I, I just, I really want a picture of all three of them holding we'll the, same the same basketball. ball. Yeah, we need to get the Photoshop. 
rolling on that one. <laughs> Fire up the Photoshop. All right, let's take a quick break because I think that's going to be a nice segue into this next segment. We'll be right back. This week in Suns history. The 2013-2014 season was a season that was interesting for many reasons and has become known here on the timeline as accidentally good. The season was the first season with brand new general manager Ryan McDonough and new coach Jeff Hornacek. The assumption for many was that the team was tanking based on the moves that Ryan McDonough made, like trading Gortat for nothing and trading starter Jared Dudley for up-and-comer Eric Bledsoe. The team got off to a much better start than expected, and the entire season came down to a game on April 12, 2014, against the Dallas Mavericks, a game in which the Suns lost 98-101 to and finished the season with a 48-34 and record and missed the playoffs. Um, call the timeout with 9.4 seconds left. Dragic with the inbound pass to Markeith Morris. He'll take the shot from the top of the key. Missing that three, the clock runs out. Dallas heading to the playoffs with the win and the Phoenix Suns now out of postseason contention. The 101 to 98 win for the Mavs. This is the last chance that the Suns had to make the playoffs in recent history and the last time the Suns had a winning record and the only time since Steve Nash. It's also the most wins ever won by a team that didn't make the playoffs. That game against Dallas was a good game, uh, a close game, but ultimately ended in Dallas making the playoffs and the Phoenix Suns not. This triggered a set of moves and weird seasons that really ended up in where we are now, where the team now has DeAndre Ayton, Devin Booker, and Mikhail Bridges. And who knows, maybe Zion Williamson. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that segment that we had there. We're going to try and do a This Week in Suns History as much as we can find interesting things to talk about. There's going to be weeks throughout the summer that probably nothing has happened in the past. And it's actually kind of difficult. I learned this while doing researching for this segment. It's actually kind of difficult to find when certain things happened or when interesting things happened in the past. So if you have any ideas for uh, Suns history outlines that correlate to the time of year that we are in, uh, send them our way. Or if you have any websites that help us find any information about things that happened in the Phoenix Suns history, send those our way too, because that would help us to research a little bit. But we're going to try and do that as much as possible going forward. Um, I can't now, wait for the August transaction this week in Suns history. <laughs> this week in Suns history, when the Suns signed Sonny Weems from Russian juggernaut <laughs> Seska Moscow. Can't wait for those. <laughs> But yeah, in all seriousness, guys, so far away, if you find this interesting. Yes, yes. I'm looking forward to doing it because uh, just thinking about this this team, and it's not always going to be things that are fun to talk about, but I think there's there's an element of just being a Suns fan where you have to live in the wallows. You have to kind of go into the depths every once in a while, and then uh, and then hopefully we can climb our way out of it eventually if Robert Sarver pulls his head out of his ass. But we should talk about... Not the Suns for a little while, and I know this is a Suns podcast, but the fact is the playoffs are about to start. The season is about to end. There's only one Suns game left, and there's still a lot of NBA to talk about. And Sam and I, although we watch all 82 games of the Phoenix Suns, we also pay attention to the rest of the league as well. And for that, I do want to talk about some of the awards that are about to come out. Now, we know that there's an award show that happens after the playoffs, but I think the entirety of the voting is about to begin 
for all of the key awards for the NBA. And I just want to break down some of those races with Sam today, and it'll help you guys to understand sort of how we feel about the NBA and the kind of players that we value. Um, The first one I want to talk about, and it's probably not going to be super fun to talk about, but that's Rookie of the Year. Um, This is maybe... One of the greatest draft classes of all time, at least in their rookie years, right? Seriously. No, seriously. It's hands down. It's so good. It's so good. It really good. is. It really is. I mean, if you even if you don't think about, uh, like, it's just nuts. First of all, DeAndre, in the number one pick, has an, one of the most efficient years of all time uh, from a rookie player especially averaging over 15 points a game he is the most efficient player averaging over 15 points a game of course you can you can filter by less points than that and find guys that shot two two or three times a game and are more efficient but that's not the same he carried a workload and is still one of the most efficient players in the nba and continually improved throughout the year there's the favorite of course luka Doncic, who started the year looking like a 10-year veteran and i know that suns fans don't like to hear about this a lot but he was absolutely incredible to start the year, and he was surrounded by the right kind of players, too, so it, it did help him. You know, he had some shooters, he had some defenders, he had a rim runner in DeAndre Jordan, and these are all players that help complement his skill set, and he was incredible. And then you have Trey Young turning it on towards the end of the year. Trey Young was absolutely incredible for, since the All-Star break leading them to victories, hitting game winners, hitting insane step-back threes. Um, His shooting has skyrocketed, and he's already, as a rookie, one of the best passers in the NBA. And this is not even talking about guys like Jaron Jackson Jr., who who is just basically out of the race because he's injured. Uh, And Colin Sexton, who's been turning it on, is actually a capable three-point shooter now. Uh, You know, there's just so many rookies to talk about, but we do have to narrow it down on who we think the rookie of the year is, right? Yeah, we do. Uh, it's it's Luca, right? Let's just be. It honest. has to be. Yeah, I, I figured we wouldn't disagree on this one. It's just I really like the way Trey is playing. But you've got a. I'm super excited to talk about not specifically this race, by the way, but just that we're talking. We never get to talk about the NBA. This is fun. Uh, but you have to reward yeah. the full season of work. And and the fact of the matter is that if you're a Suns fan and you're mad about Luca winning Rookie of the Year because of you know the fact that his team sucks in the second half of the season and he's putting up. You can't use the empty stats argument against him. His efficiency has gone no. down. But you're a Devin Booker fan. Like you should, you should know that this is the way things work. Since the All Star break, uh, Luca's averaging 23 points, nine and a half rebounds, seven assists per game on 52% true shooting. It's below average, but it's still solid. His team sucks. He's he's doing his best to carry the load. Uh, he's just been fantastic. Like you know, if he was averaging 15 and five post All Star break, and Trey was surging the way that he currently is, then I would understand Trey. Uh, coming away with it but Luca has just stayed consistent enough throughout the season that you know e- even if he hasn't been better than Trey in the past month you got to give the award to him yeah I, I agree with that but I also don't think it's insane to vote for Trey Young I think this race is actually really close I think what Trey Young's done in in the last month or so maybe two months is is the same argument you can make about him in the in the in the last two months is what you made about Luka Doncic or a lot of people made about Luka Doncic in the, in the first two months it's the not not just the stats, not just the counting stats, not just the efficiency. It's the moments. It's the moments that he's had. He's had some insane moments where he's putting the team on his back at the end of games. 
He's hit game. He had a game-winning tip in <laughs> of all the things. He's the smallest, one of the smallest guys in the NBA. He had a game-winning tip in. He he just he finds ways when the game is close to pull wins out of his ass. And 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 for a guy like that to do that at his size and 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 at the level that he's been doing it, because a lot of people just didn't believe it was possible. We were always fans of Trey Young on this podcast. We talked about him uh, as the third best player in the draft. When when we did our draft episode, it feels like a million years ago. Uh, but one of our first episodes we ever did on this podcast was talking about how good Trey Young is and how both of us were believers. Um, I always believed in Luka Doncic more than him. So to be honest, the fact that it's so close towards the end of this year, it's a surprise for me. But I don't think anybody is completely unjustified if they were to actually vote for him as the rookie of the year at this point. I know that a lot of people would consider that blasphemous, but the fact is a lot of the arguments people were making about Luka Doncic at the beginning of the year are gone now. They said he was a winner. They said he was efficient. Well, he's not winning anymore, and he's not very efficient. So the fact that that's gone down matters, I think, for this race. It's just how good he was before that is almost enough. And, you know, it's unfortunate. You know, fatigue, we made the joke about him being fat, and you can't spell fatigue without fat (laughs) with Richard. And that's part of the problem with Luka Doncic. I swear to God, if he comes to the NBA with a six-pack next year, we're in trouble. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, but yeah, it's got to be Luka. It's got to be Luka. Do you think this, uh, when you say it's going to be close, I don't know, I think we're fabricating it a little bit. Is this going to be closer than last year's race? Probably not. No, no, I, I don't. I actually don't think it will be close. I should say. I think that the voters will all vote for Luka Doncic when it's all said and done, but I think there's going to be a lot of hemming and hawing before they do it. Actually, I just went back and looked at last year's race, and I realized, you know, there are probably a lot of parallels. Ben Simmons got 90 first place votes. Donovan Mitchell got 11, and it felt like they were. Yeah, months, I think it'll be like there that. were months of media hype, you know, about hitting the two sides against each other, and then when when the cards actually fell, it was 90 to 11. I think that's what we're going to see this year. Yeah, I think I, that's exactly how I think it, it will shake out. I don't think it's going to be. I think the media loves Luka Doncic, and I think they should. But I think a lot of the Luka Doncic love is, see, I told you so. You know, <laughs> it's that it comes from that perspective where uh, there were so many people before the draft talking about how good Luka Doncic is, and because so so many fans were so uneducated about Euroleague and just did not see how good he is, or could not even envision a world where he would be this good. Um, I think there's a little bit of that built into how a lot of media members who will be voting for this feel about him. And I, I don't think that matters. I think he deserves to win. So that's that's just kind of what it is. Let's talk about the most improved player. Um, there's really, I mean, I guess there's a few guys that you can talk about for this award. But the, the name for me that immediately comes to mind is Pascal Siakam because just how unlikely it is for him to be playing as good as he is. The the Raptors are actually my favorite Eastern Conference team. Uh, a long time ago on this podcast, I talked about them as the most likely team to make it to the Eastern Conference, uh, to the finals, I should say, to make it out of the Eastern Conference. I know that's a little blasphemous because of how good the Bucks are. I just think at his very, very peak, Kawhi Leonard uh, is just better than Giannis, and maybe I'll be wrong about that, but I just want to see it in the playoffs before I, I make up my mind about that. And I've seen... Kawhi Leonard shut down LeBron James in the finals. So I have a lot of faith in him. And I think people forget about him because he's only played like 55 games this year. But the second best player on that team this year has been Pascal Siakam, one of the best defenders in the league. He has a three-point shot. He's got an insane spin move that he goes to over and over and over again. 
and his stats have just gone up an insane amount. And I, I talked about him on Twitter today. He's going to be a max player. He had one of the biggest shots in a game today uh, in overtime. So I, I think that's the main player for me. I, I guess you could point out a few other players, but what do you think, Sam? I'm usually against the concept of giving most improved players to young players, guys in, say, their second or third, uh, even fourth seasons, because I think, for the most part, development is expected. I'm going to make, like, for instance, De'Aaron Fox is probably the guy I'm going to single out there. De'Aaron Fox was a top 10 pick. He's had a great season. I don't think anyone saw this leap coming. But on the other hand, he's kind of now just playing like he was expected to in the first place. You were a top pick. You're expected to be a contributor to a decent basketball team. I'll make an exception for Siakam, who I do like. Uh, and I agree with you, he's probably going to win. Uh, because he was just a late first-round pick who's you know now in his third season. No one really saw this coming. No one saw him you know, more than doubling his scoring average, increasing his playmaking with, without turning the ball over, being a fantastic defender. You say he's the second best player on the Raptors, and that's definitely true. It's just there's so many good players on the Raptors that I guess maybe that's the only yeah. narrative that works against him. Is that I mean, I know it's not a team award right. in any sense of the word, but it's just a little bit harder to measure potentially direct impact of Siakam to that whole team when you have so many experienced guys uh, between Kawhi and Lowry and now Marc Gasol and Ibaka. Uh, Danny Green and and the list goes on and on, and so for that reason, I think there are a couple of their a uh, couple other sleepers. If you want to talk about guys who are more traditionally suited for most improved player, guys who have been in the league for a long time and then kind of just came out of nowhere with a really good season, I think Nikola Vucevic is probably the best name there, uh, mm. especially now that Orlando has just clinched a playoff spot, which I'm really happy that they have, because it felt like for years and years Vucevic was one of the main anchors on a team that was just like. He is the empty calorie starting center in the NBA that struggles to clean. Right. It's too flat-footed, can't protect the rim, uh, isn't efficient enough offensively. You know, he didn't have the three-point shot until a couple of years uh, ago. And now all of a sudden it just came together. His efficiency increased across the board. His playmaking increased. They start to run their offense more through him. And you see it lead to the win total as well. That's that's one guy that I would like to give some respect to. I still think Siakam is probably going to run away with it at the end of the day. Yeah, you know, to me, Kawhi Leonard was out for so many games this year. They they were very careful with him, and I think they want so desperately to keep him that they just basically said, anytime you want time off, <laughs> you can get it. But when Kawhi Leonard was out, Pasco Siakam took that team on his shoulders, and he had many 30-point games in those scenarios, and he was clearly the best player left on that team. And I just think that's so unexpected out of a player like that that that's exactly what this award is for I do like De'Aaron Fox I like Vucevic and even on De'Aaron Fox's own team Buddy Heald is actually an option that you could convince me of because of how good he's been this year it's just how unexpected that entire team was Uh, but I think Siakam's got that wrapped up I don't there's probably no chance nobody to your point Siakam had his 44 point game like because he had a few scoring explosions but like the 44 point game he had against Washington uh, which was recently it was last month uh, or or maybe maybe like just after the all-star break but that was that was out of nowhere, and that uh, came with Kawhi off the floor. He was just took over, and that came as the leading score. What do you think, really quickly before we move on? What about like Paul George? I think OKC tanking in the standings recently hurts them, but Paul George, it's you know because we're going to talk about MVP in a second, but you know it, it's a shame that James Harden and Giannis are just so out of this world amazing this season because in a lot of other seasons, I think you could convince me that Paul George is really having an MVP caliber year. And I'm not sure that I saw that coming from him. I thought at this point in his career, he was just 
pretty stagnant with what he is as a player. But with Russ dipping in efficiency so much this season, Paul George really picked up that team and, and led it to some great first halves. You know, that's an interesting one, and it leads nicely into the next discussion. I want to talk about Defensive Player of the Year, but I think that's a fair point to make, and, you know, he at least deserves to be talked about. But I have, I also think that's just another reminder that when you have an injury as serious as Paul George had or another example Gordon Hayward had, uh, it takes a long time to come back from it. It, it could be, And I think it's for two reasons. Two reasons. Physically, it takes some time to get back from it, but I think mentally it takes some time to come back from that as well because Paul George was in the MVP race previously. Uh, before he was injured, right before he was injured, in fact. Uh, so it's to me, it wasn't as huge of a surprise for him to be in that discussion again, although the MVP race is so fascinating this year. The fact that he even got his name in it is is kind of uh, interesting on its own. Uh, but I think, you know, you look at a guy like Gordon Hayward, the, the Celtics have been somewhat of a disappointment this year. I think there's a good chance that Gordon Hayward just comes out gangbusters next year and looks really good. And if the Celtics try blowing it up or changing the team around drastically, that's a guy that a lot of teams I think should target because I think there's a good chance that Gordon Hayward has a, a massive season next year because it just takes a long time to come back from an injury like that. So uh, we'll see what happens there. But defensive player of the year. So that was the other one I wanted to talk about next because you brought up Paul George. Because Paul George was actually talked about a lot in this award, but I think it just needs to go to Rudy Gobert personally. And maybe that's because of how much he dominated the Suns defensively throughout this year. So I got to see it firsthand. <laughs> He's so annoying. Yeah, it's it's not fun uh, to watch, but also the way that team looks without him on the floor is it's not good. He he makes such a massive difference, and I think he's underrated offensively too. For the record, I think guys that big who can catch the ball just matter to an offense. They matter. Uh, you know the stats, the on off stats are interesting for that team because without Rudy Gobert, that team is not very good with Donovan Mitchell on the floor. But also without Donovan Mitchell on the floor and Rudy Gobert on the floor, that team is also not very good. So they they kind of complement each other really well uh, on that team. But I think Rudy Gobert is so important for that team because they're mediocre offensively. They they just don't they have two good offensive players really. Uh, like I said, Rudy Gobert is underrated, but really those two offensive offensive players are Donovan Mitchell and Joe Ingles, and that entire team is sort of carried by their defense, and their defense is carried by Rudy Gobert. So I, I think that people are overthinking this award a little too much because they were just surprised at how good. Paul George was, but I think it's simple. You give it to the, a, a guy that leads basically the best defensive team in the NBA and makes the largest impact on defense. So in my opinion, that goes to Rudy Gobert uh, and and Paul George. It's unfortunate because I don't really have him uh, you know, for anything else, and he deserves to be recognized for this season for how good he's been. But it, I just to me, that's a Rudy Gobert award to win. Well, Defensive Player of the Year usually goes to bigs for a reason because they just have so much impact on the game. That's just really, you know, what being a center is all about, especially these days with, with all the pace and space. But I think traditionally how voters split for the Defensive Player of the Year award, you have to be on one of the best defensive teams in the NBA, first of all. There's a reason that Sean Marion, as gifted uh, uh, an athlete and defensive player as he was, uh, never made all defensive teams because he was stuck on a mediocre defensive team overall. And so if you look at the top four teams in the league by defensive rating, You've got the Milwaukee Bucks first, the Jazz second, the Pacers third, and the Thunder fourth. And that creates your race right there because that creates the race of right. as Giannis for the Bucks, who I don't think should win. But I think he's in there as a, as a fancy name because the Bucks are the best defensive team. I think he has too much defensive help around him to legitimately win the award. You've got Rudy Gobert second. You've got Miles Turner in there for the Pacers, who again are third. And you've got Paul George, as you just mentioned. 
I'm just going to toss out Paul George and Giannis as the perimeter players. Again, I think it's really hard to really make that good of a case for defensive player of the year for wings. It's just difficult. I mean, maybe that's biased and, you know, maybe I'm not seeing some of the nuances there. Uh, but I think, like you said, when you have guys like Rudy Gobert just carrying his team defensively as much as he is, uh, I, I think it's really hard to go against that. Uh, ESPN's real plus minus, if you sort uh, by that, uh, Rudy Gobert has the best defensive RPM in the NBA. He's first by a very wide margin. And the guys below him, a few of the guys below him are guys who don't play that many minutes. It's guys like Nerlens Noel, who's great defensively in short spurts, but not an actual challenge to him for the award. Uh, Miles Turner is sixth. And then Paul George and Giannis are down around the 19th, 20th area. So I think it really becomes a conversation of Gobert versus Turner. Uh, Turner has better block numbers. And I think like maybe if there was just voter fatigue, then you could give it to Miles Turner. But overall, I think it's hard. To- Not enough minutes. I mean, he, he plays he plays like upper 20s minutes versus Gobert's lower 30s. Like, I think you could definitely make an argument for Miles Turner who's been on a good team that lost its best player in Victor Oladipo and has anchored them defensively. Um, I think a lot of the voters who are old-fashioned will just appreciate the fact that Miles Turner leads the league in blocks. I think that's the way these things go a lot of the time. And obviously that's not all there is to defense, but I think you could make a good case for him. I just don't know if the voter fatigue is actually there for Gobert to lose the award fully, but I think this might be a tight race. Yeah, I think it's one of the more interesting ones. And I think, uh, you know, I think there's actually a good chance that Paul George wins because a lot of people will look at this and say, well, he's not going to win MVP. And he was at times the third best player in the NBA definitively. And he deserves to be recognized for that for a reason. So I think that's the type of thinking that leads to a guy like him winning that award. And I, and I, if that does happen, I think it's unfortunate quickly before we get to the last two awards. I do want to say that uh, PJ Tucker has still not made an all defensive team. Uh, so if he doesn't make one this year, I'm going to riot personally because it's just that guy. If he doesn't get one, what's the what? What even is the point? Because he he's just a guy that defends five different positions, and and he's just too good. And he is maybe the best defensive player on on the on the Rockets, and they've had consistent defense over the last few years. So I, I hope he does make it this They're year. They're 17th in defensive rating. I'm not saying that has any bearing on PJ Tucker's defensive ability whatsoever. All I'm saying is history suggests that that yeah. alone means he won't get the vote. Right. That's all I'm saying. Right. Uh, yeah. Like Houston, for better no, or worse, you're, you're, is you're totally team. right. Yeah, they're known as the offensive three-point chucking team, regardless of P.J. Tucker's defensive con- contributions, just like, you know, the right. same thing happened to Sean Marion all those years in a row. But meanwhile, Kobe's on a good defensive yes. team, not to his own merit, all those years in L.A., and he racked up those awards. Got like eight to ten all-defensive selections that he didn't deserve. Right. I mean, in, in reality, P.J. Tucker deserved it last year. And if he gets it this year, it's because he didn't get it last year. He just deserves it. He, it's one of those legacy awards. It's like Martin Scorsese winning uh, Best Director for The Departed instead of all the all the movies he should have won for. <laughs> so, you know, I just I hope that uh, I hope that he does make a team. But last two awards, we'll we'll start with Coach of the Year, and then we'll get into that MVP conversation at the end here. Coach of the Year is kind of interesting. There's a few different candidates. I think the most obvious one is Mike Budenholzer, and I just think he's basically guaranteed to win this award. Uh, but you know, I think that something should be said for Nate McMillan. Nate McMillan first is the first guy I want to talk about because they lost their best player and they just kept winning and they kept winning and winning and winning. And you know, a lot of people felt like they shouldn't even been winning the way they were. They were the third seed when Victor Oladipo went down. Uh, a lot of people felt like they shouldn't even have been there when he was healthy. So already he was in, in contention for that coach of the year award. And then Victor Oladipo went down 
and uh, and they just continued to win. And I think something should be said for that. Uh, one, because everyone said that they were insane to hire him in the first place, you know, narrative wise. Uh, the fact that he's been so good, I think that he deserves to be talked about for this award. Um, and then two, because they just continued to win and, and, and they're so adaptable. And he's turned some guys that were sort of question marks into some really good players on that team. Uh, so I think he should be talked about. The other guy I think uh, should be mentioned is... Doc Rivers, because it's a similar situation. The Clippers just won and won and won and won, and they're winning in a tougher conference to win in. And then their team got shook up halfway through the year again, and they lost maybe their best offensive player, well, one of their best offensive players, in Tobias Harris. Uh, So that's another situation where uh, the coach had to instantly and immediately adapt, and he did, and they continued to win and win and win. And a lot of that has to be said a lot of the credit just goes to having a bunch of pros on that team and I do understand that but a coach still has to understand how to implement those guys and how to manage a game well and I think Doc Rivers has done a really good job I don't think there's a chance that either of those guys win but I think both of them should be mentioned in this race uh but it's 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 bud right yeah it's bud uh I mean if you look at it people are just going to try to separate the variables and they're going to see a team that won like 16 or 17 more games this season uh, with basically the same players, right. except for the addition of Brook Lopez. And that's kind of the thing right. that's most fascinating to me, is I just want like an intense 30 for 30 documentary on Brook Lopez's conversation with the Bucks, uh when when he decided to sign there and, and start chucking like eight threes per game, something that he had never done before, <laughs> and totally shook up the the Bucks' offensive strategy, but also just like single-handedly, is it, is it unfair to say single-handedly turn them into an offensive juggernaut? Like Brooke Lopez alone and Mike Budenholzer's coaching, and that's why he's going to win the win the award. They went from shooting twenty five threes per game to thirty eight. You know, they they became like a cl- close to top five team in assists, despite having no special playmakers. Certainly not in Eric Bledsoe, who we know that firsthand from his time with Phoenix, and not Malcolm Brogdon either. <laughs> he's been good. He's yeah, no, he has been good. I'm just saying he's not like, you know, it, it's not a team that you would immediately think right. of. It's, it, right. There's no one on that team that has impeccable vision, not even Giannis itself. And yeah. they also decreased Giannis's workload. Like Giannis under Jason Kidd was a guy who went out. Right. He played 37, 38 minutes per game this year. He doesn't have to. And it's not even because they have an amazing bench, but they're just blowing out teams early enough that I think last time I checked, he was around like 32, 33 minutes per game. So... You know, that just being able to win all those games with basically the same team, it's going to yeah. go to Bud. Yeah, and I think I, I do think he deserves it. I just want I just wanted to make a point that those other guys have been good this year. And actually, before we get into the uh, into the MVP conversation, we should quickly talk about six men of the year as well. I just I, I think that it's obvious it goes to uh, Lou Williams personally. But do you have do you have some thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, does it have to go to a guard every year? Like, that's that's my gripe with this. I'm glad you brought this up. We almost forgot to talk about this. Lamar Odom was the last big to win this stupid fucking award, wow. like, like 15 years ago, 10 years ago, maybe, in the past couple decades. But, like, there, there are other archetypes for players that contribute off the bench than guys who come in. I'm not saying Lou Williams has been bad. He's, he's putting up, like, career-high numbers. For him to come in and shoot efficiently, and score 20 points per game and dish out like five assists in less than 30 minutes. That's so, so impressive. On the other hand, I, I just, there's something about the mold of the J.R. Smiths and the Jamal Crawfords and the Lou Williams and, and even Leandro Barbosa's and all these guys who have won the award. It doesn't have to be this way. Montrez Harrell has had a very, very good season. 
He's averaging close to 17-7 and one and a half blocks per game. Uh, he obviously has an amazing true shooting percentage because all he does is dunk. But value over replacement player, Montrez Harrell has a VORP of 3.2, which is 27th in the NBA. And that's a stat that depends on how many wow. minutes you play. Like it's a BPM multiplier. So the more minutes you play, the easier it is if you're having a good season to, to have a higher VORP. For Montrez Harrell to be a bench player in the top 30 in the NBA in that stat, you know, it's maybe a little bit biased because of the way that he plays as, as just like a big that comes in there and uses his energy to do all the work. But I think he deserves a real look. And, you know, maybe this race doesn't have as much um, spewing hate from either sides, because I think if it's Lou Williams and Montrez Harrell, they're on the same team. So it doesn't really matter who wins. Uh, but I think Sabonis is another guy that you could throw into that race as well for, for much the same reason, uh, especially for his increased playmaking this season and just efficiency overall. I would just like to see this award go go to not a guard for once, not a 6-2 guard with poor vision. That's maybe unfair to Lou Williams, but not just a 6-2 guard who just comes off and, and chucks 20 shots a game. Yeah. Hey, he runs pick and rolls now. No, he does. No, and seriously, Lou Williams. <laughs> he's very, not just isolating No, he's anymore. totally not. Lou Williams is, is better. And that's the funny thing, right? Lou Williams, if he wins this year, would be his third, I think. And this has been his best year of the three. So that logic right there, it, it just makes sense. Right. It's like Steve Nash having his most efficient season, the season he didn't <laughs> win MVP because they had to give it to Nash at that point. I mean, sorry, they had to give it to Dirk at that point. You weren't going to give it to Nash three years in a row. It would be much the same thing here with with Lou Williams. It's his best season. I just don't know. I mean, maybe that's like more of like an emotional gripe on my part than like not a logical thing. I'm just kind of tired of, of seeing the same exact type of player win this award every season. I think you're going to have to wait. Yeah, <laughs> it's going to be Lou. <laughs> and, you know, he's been the, I, to me. He's the I think he might be the best player on that team. And that's enough to me for him to, to win that award. But yeah, you're right. I, hopefully it does happen in the future, but I don't, the way the NBA works now, I just think there's no chance that a big wins anytime soon. They just, they don't reward defense in that award. And, uh, you know, defense is a lot of what a big would bring. There's, there's a rare offensive, you know, off the bench kind of guy like Ennis Cantor, I guess was a guy like that. It's just that, you know, they just would never win that award because the, the perception is bigs need to bring defense, but they don't award defense in that award. So it's just not going to happen. You would need to be a, Um, but we should talk lastly, you need to be like, maybe, maybe a power forward. forward, forward, Maybe not a center. Yeah. That would make it more likely. I I can't even think of who the best forward off the bench would be this year. That's kind of an interesting conversation. Well, it would be like the equivalent to Lamar Odom. I can't, I can't think of who it would be either, but we should just move on to MVP probably. Yeah. <laughs> well, now I'm going to think about the rest of the night. All right, MVP. There's two guys. It's a two-man race at this point. We talked a little bit about Paul George. He fell off. Uh, you know, Some people are saying he's injured. Some people are saying he has a shoulder problem. We'll see how he looks in the playoffs. It's Giannis or it's Harden. Uh, let's just say who we got. I got Harden. I got Harden. This is boring, dude. We think the same thing. <laughs> I'm shocked, we- to be honest. I, why are you? But why are you shocked? Like, why is it not Harden? Like, can okay, maybe like I think well, you can argue both sides in a way that I can't. Like, I'm firmly yeah Harden at this point. Can you explain? Not that Giannis has had a bad season, and, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But talk about that. <laughs> Giannis has a historic season. That's yeah, and that's what I want to talk about. But first off, he's on the best team in the NBA. Traditionally, best player on the best team. That's who the award goes to. So the best team in the NBA. And he deserves to win from that. But also, he's the, probably the best defensive player on his team. And they have the number one defense. 
And his numbers are Shaq numbers. His efficiency, the amount he's scoring, his rebounds. But he also has five assists per game. So all of those combined are enough to uh, to, to give him that award. But, but the other argument I saw on Twitter that I, I think is an interesting argument, somebody said, when I think about this season, I think about Giannis. And I think that's actually a fair point to make. If you think about this season 10 years from now, you're probably going to think that's the year that Giannis became the best player in the NBA. And, uh, and, and, you know, that's an argument that's, that's easy to make. And, and of course with Harden, and if you want to talk about it, I'll let you talk about it. But the, the number one thing for him is he has the most points scored in the last 50 years besides Michael Jordan in the season. And that's pretty huge. It's really fucking huge. He's breaking the game of basketball as we know. <laughs> Here's what I want to say about Giannis. First of all, who, okay. Regardless of who finishes second, if it's Harden or if it's Giannis, here's my take on that. The second place finisher in this year's MVP race would be the deserving MVP in any season from like any year after Michael Jordan law, uh, won his final MVP until when LeBron James started. Yeah. Winning. They would win over Allen Iverson, Tim Duncan, Kevin Garnett, Steve Nash, Kobe Bryant, uh, Dirk Nowitzki. I, I say all of those guys. Yeah, they would be deserving over all of those guys because here's an even hotter take. Like, Absolutely. Talk about. Oh my god, it bugs me. And, and maybe my age is going to show here, but I just think we're not fully appreciating how fucking good basketball players are right now. And you know, we're we're yeah. looking at all of these teams. It's not just that the pace is going up. Teams are scoring more points, yeah. and it's not because of defense either. If you compare the NBA right now to the NBA when when Steve Nash first took over. In that season, the 2005 season, five teams had an offensive rating of at least 110. This season, 16 teams have an offensive rating of at least 110. And that's not because of changes in defensive rules. Teams were hand-checking then, uh, or sorry, teams couldn't hand-check back then, and they still can't hand-check now. And that's also independent of pace, because offensive rating is independent of pace. Teams just have shooters. Like, everyone can shoot now, and the players are just so so phenomenally good so that's that's my overall point is that whoever finishes second is still probably better right now in their peak than an entire generation of nba legends that we revere including greats like steve nash that right. being said james harden is breaking the game of basketball with the way that he's dominating in isolation regardless of how you feel about that double step back travel you know bullshit regardless of how you feel about you know the way that he draws contact uh, and gets to the free throw line we just we just haven't seen this before. The way that he scores in isolation for a player to have this volume of isolation plays as well as three point attempts and keep up the efficiency on par with what he's done the rest of his career. The way that he creates all of his points pretty much unassisted. It's just it hasn't been done before. Not like this. And I think you just have to reward it when you couple that with the fact that he is a worse team than he did last year. And they're two games back from being the first seed in the Western Conference a team, a, a conference that features a team of five all-stars. I, like, it's just right. everything is colliding to say that James Harden, it has to be the MVP again. But but that's just my take. I wouldn't be mad if Giannis won because he's had mm. a, a deserving season in many senses as well. It just has to be Harden in my opinion. I'm going to be mad if he wins. You're going to be <laughs> mad? <laughs> yes. I, <laughs> it's just, for one, okay, 
I know Eastern Conference fans hate when people say this, but it just matters more to win in the Western Conference. It, it just does. It, I, I, do, I don't really care if it pisses people off, and we're lucky to have uh, people who are listening to this podcast are just fans of Western Conference teams, so they just get it. They just understand that it's just completely different to play in the West, and it, so it matters more. I know that they have a better record, the Bucks do, but and I know that they, they kill everyone. They kill Western Conference teams too, but that just matters. But I think the main thing to me is if we're talking about most valuable player, we're just talking about that most valuable player. James Harden is an offense unto himself. He just is. Giannis has been incredible this season, but he's been incredible because they finally built the right team around him. The real truth of it is, you just add James Harden to the Suns right now, you take Devin Booker off and put him in his place, the Suns now will have one of the top offenses in the league. And just that alone would do it. Because that's how good he's been on his own. And that's without his passing. That's just on his ability to create shots on his own and be efficient in a way that, like you said, we have never seen before. That is not a joke. And people will say, oh, well, Steph Curry was allowed to do it. Maybe he could do it. Yeah, well, he hasn't. He just hasn't. Maybe someday we'll get to see that and maybe it's possible for him to do it. But I think part of what makes James Harden good is his durability and he and Steph Curry does not have that. He just doesn't. I think, I think to me, I, here's what I think. I think James Harden is not going to win this award, and I'm already mad about it. <laughs> That's the real truth of it. Because I think, and I and I get what you're saying, and I think you're right. Giannis deserves it too, and and it's not like this big travesty. It's not like when Russell Westbrook you, won you, over James Harden. It's you convinced me, dude. Fuck it. Giannis doesn't deserve this award. <laughs> you just convinced me with that. There may as well have been like battle music playing in the background as a rallying cry for everyone on team Harden right now. I'm totally convinced. I'm going to be mad if Giannis wins. I just think that Harden is un- underappreciated because people don't like when they foul him. And I want to word it like that. People don't like when they foul him. He gets fouled. It is not that he is faking it. He flops sometimes and yes, he complains a lot, but also he gets fouled a lot. Because he's impossible to guard. That is the real reason he gets fouled a lot. You can blame it on whatever else you want, but the truth of it is, it's the only way to defend him, and it still doesn't work. That's just what it is. And I think the fact that he lost over Russell Westbrook, I'm still mad about it. <laughs> I'm still mad about it. And I get round numbers are fun. Yeah, it's fun that he averaged over over 10 rebounds. Yeah, it's fun that he averaged over 10 assists. But what James Harden did that season was... Uh, just underappreciated already and it's gonna to me it's gonna happen again so it's unfortunate but I'm glad we're on the same page although maybe it would have been more fun if we were arguing uh, <laughs> but I, you know maybe I think that it has to do with us really watching closely to Western Conference teams and maybe that makes us appreciate James Harden a little bit more I definitely think that's part of that it's just hard to respect Easter. This episode went long. Yeah, it ran long because, you know, we finally talked about the NBA. Like, you know, I was excited to do this because, guys, we haven't talked about the NBA really uh, all season long. So it's fun to just get our takes out there about this other stuff. And, hey, we, yeah. we need content for the next month <laughs> when the playoffs start. So you can already <laughs> bet. We're going we're gonna to find Suns topics to talk about. Don't worry, guys, if this bored you. But hopefully it didn't. Uh, but we'll be talking about playoff matchups as well because, like I said, the NBA is awesome right now. We got some great, we're in a great yep. era of basketball. Like, I'm very confident. in. I can't wait for the playoffs. I can't wait. I think I think the Warriors are vulnerable. I think that there's a chance they just steamroll the league, but I still think they're more than any other year, even though they have five uh, All-Stars, I think there's a chance that they can get beat. The, the, the Kevin Durant free agency looming, 
that that's hurt teams before. It, it hurt LeBron uh, when his free agency was looming over either Miami or Cleveland. And uh, it hurt OKC when it was looming over OKC. So I think they're vulnerable. And I think there's a lot of interesting matchups besides that. There's not a single team I think that any team is looking forward to playing at this point, except for maybe, maybe the Portland Trail Blazers because uh, Nurkic's leg broke in half. But (laughs) we'll be back. We'll talk more about the playoffs because that's just going to be one of the topics we can talk about. And I think it'll be interesting to talk about it, even from a Phoenix Suns perspective, as we see what is successful in the playoffs and how to build a team because the rest of these podcasts are going to be about team building. There's one game left against the Dallas Mavericks that, of course, the Suns will win. But beyond that, <laughs> we got to talk about putting a brand new team together. We we own them. We own the Mavs. No, you're right. It's official. I, I don't know. Who's who's dropping 30 in that game? Ray Spalding? No, it's Bender. Come on. Of course it's Bender. I, I think it's over the last five years, the Suns have beat Dallas more than any other team. That, that something like that. I'll find it by next. Look that week. up. That can't be true. That's just- there was a here's what I, there was a Reddit post that would say who owns each team, who owns each team. So it went through the last few years. I don't remember the exact length of time, and it detailed who's beat each team the most times. And for Dallas, it was the Suns. That's that's honestly <laughs> really impressive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, stick around, guys. We'll be back talking about more NBA soon, and hopefully, like I said, a win against Dallas. Uh, Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel. Follow us on Twitter at The Timeline Pod. And thanks, everyone, for listening. wrapped up another episode of the timeline i love this podcast and if you're like me you want as much sun's content as possible that's why i listen to the timeline every week so if you want to go ahead and hear some more phoenix sun's content go ahead and listen to the solar panel at phoenix sun show we are available on spotify on itunes on stitcher on google play anywhere that you listen to podcasts go ahead and check out the solar panel a phoenix sun's show Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.